Welcome one and all to Tape Makers, the show where we listen, discuss, and then based only on our opinion, objectively rank every single album ever released in one single-tiered list. I'm your host, Josh Stoller, and uh, with me today is the always non-fungible Jared Richard. Jared, how you doing? Uh, f- feeling, uh, I'm feeling fungible. I feel like a fungus. You, you're, that's, you're what feeling, I, that's what that's what... You're, you're feeling fungible, where there's multiples of you, and there's a there's a never-ending source of, of fungible Jared Richards. All I am is a is a spore-producing uh, armature of a mycelium, Josh, and and <laughs> uh, that's 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 all I have ever been. Thank you all for uh, tuning in this week. Uh, You can find us on, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you want to listen to podcasts, really. Uh, You can rate and review us on all those beautiful places. That super helps. And also just let a friend know, hey, these dudes talk about being fungi. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, I believe it's pronounced fungi. Oh, sorry. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I bring this up because uh, the likelihood that NFTs have hit music. Yeah, NFTs of hit music. Uh, we're not going to fully explain what NFTs are, but basically, uh, they are... Wait, are you telling me that we, as two white males with a podcast, are not going to discuss NFTs? Uh... The, this is the this is the yearly NFT talk I'm going to allow as host of the podcast. Uh... But basically, it's... It means that you own a token, a token of something online, saying that you have ownership over a digital good. Um, but it's but it's a copy. No, you technically own the source. You technically own the source that was put onto OpenSeas dot whatever it is that right, was stolen but, from another artist. We're not going to get into it. The, sh- <laughs> the, the, the part, part of, I'm sure of why you bring this up is because recently there was a, an NFT, uh, uh, mining operation, yes. mm-hmm. uh, called hit piece, uh, that was full of, uh, music mm-hmm. that was, being sold as NFTs that was made by people who had no idea that that was happening. Yeah, um, it, it basically replicated the UI of like Spotify, basically, or Apple Music, and was like, you can buy all of this as NFTs, and then all of the artists who got wind of this were like, no, we own this, you cannot own this. Uh, an acquaintance of mine uh, who, as far as I'm aware, they don't even have music on streaming services. I believe all of their music is only available through Bandcamp. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, um, they they went on hit piece and like a good portion of their music was available for purchase there as NFTs. Right, and it uh, <laughs> it was like uh, the the site was taken down, like not taken down, but basically like they got they received so many complaints in such a short amount of time that they had to like cease operation. Yes. Um, and so by the time I was able to get there to try and check. You know, if anything that I had created was out there being sold without permission and without any reimbursement on my end, uh, I couldn't check. It was already down. So, yeah, well, it's it's similar to like the whole board ape NFT thing, which is like the big one where it's just different pictures of apes. And the person who drew all those apes being like, yeah, no, I didn't approve 
like the original artist was just like, yeah, no, I didn't know that they were using this for NFTs. Interesting, because uh, I heard some different information about the source of those uh, pieces of art, oh, air quotes. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> what I what I read, and you know, I say read as if anybody really reads anything. Right. <laughs> Uh, a post that came across my Instagram with that, you know, at least had cited sources and uh, was somewhat reputable as far as information. It was a sort of an art conglomerate, oh, uh, like okay. a, a, a team of artists that created those pieces. And they're, uh, you know, they're all like sort of um, uh shielded identity like not you know they don't use their right. real names for anything right, right, right. yada yada yeah. um but they do use a lot of uh uh white supremacist uh <laughs> subtext for their names and for some of the pieces that they name the ah. names that they use for things as well as a lot of the uh ape uh artwork being uh uh sort of using a lot of specifically nazi and and uh german uh war uh german nationalist german nationalist um uh visuals uh i'm bad with details so i can't go right. into no, into a good. bunch of it but yeah. suffice it to say there was some very sketchy stuff uh discovered recently about the creators or or at least the people selling those pieces yes i think so how i understand is that uh the actual artist who originally created like the ape, the board ape thing, uh, didn't know that it was going to be used for NFTs and didn't like sign off on it to be like NFT stuff. Excellent. And then the company that is selling them is sketchy and white nationalist and fashy as hell. Excellent. So yeah, NFTs be a scam. Uh, it's just a pyramid scheme. Uh, every single time someone explains it to me, I'm just like, this is. But this is all. The only reason that any of this has any value is because you decided that it needs to have value. So therefore, the only way for you to keep that value is to convince other people that it has value. And the less people believe that it has value, the less value it does have. But the more people that believe it has value, the more of it. Like, it, it's all it's, just... It's, <laughs> it's literally just like explaining the concept of currency as it is today to an alien. Yeah, but, like, worse somehow. <laughs> oh, way worse. Way worse. Uh, and the only other, like, you know, speaking of kind of white nationally uh, <laughs> thing that kind of happened in, related to the music world since we last talked was uh, Joe Rogan and Spotify. Uh, yeah, okay, I want to, before we get into it, yes. because this, this is a piece of information that I feel like a lot of people don't know um, that sort of... Uh, changes it's not like it'll drastically change your perception of the situation um, but regarding uh, Neil Young he had polio when he was a kid yes and that's part of why he's so pro, like pro-vax like yeah. aggressively pro-vax um, <clears throat> knowing that I just like have a little more respect for what he's doing right. not, not that I think that what he's doing is making much of a difference in any capacity no uh, yeah, so so basically, uh, it finally a bunch of musicians who own their own music. First off, who mm -hmm. have the ability to decide where and and how uh, their music is is uh, put online and sold and whatnot, started pulling their music uh, because a bunch of 
anti-vax white nationalists like all of this stuff but a lot of like very very anti-vax stuff was mm -hmm. coming clips were being making the rounds on joe rogan's podcast a lot of Spotify. misinformation Spotify spent a hundred million dollars to sign him for as an exclusive uh, podcast host, right? Um, and so more and more people started doing that. And then uh, what people have been saying, basically ever since Joe Rogan became like mainstream popular, which is like what five seven years ago, yeah, through his podcast, about five years ago, um, is that no, hey, this dude hella racist also. Yeah, surprise. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, the fascist dude and the anti-vax dude who just likes having conversations, uh, which basically just means platforming anyone who has an opinion and never pushing back on them. Uh, love saying the N-word. Just, just love... Just dropping it. Just love dropping it. Uh, Spotify slash Joe Rogan's company, whoever did it, uh, mm. had to po poll over 100 episodes wow i didn't i didn't hear about that yeah they pulled over a hundred episodes uh where joe rogan is is caught saying the n-word uh so yeah mr no one owns me king of free speech all those uh alpha alpha male al conservative alpha males yeah. who love mma they're they're spokes boy uh getting censored by himself right uh and then spotify uh said, you know, we really don't think polling Joe Rogan from our catalog is the correct answer here because who, who who wins in that situation? So instead, they have decided to donate $100 million to a multitude of different uh, minority music groups and stuff like that. So capitalism is hmm. doing great right now. Capitalism is doing great right now uh, in the music biz. Uh, speaking of capitalism doing great in the music biz, uh, the first album we're going to be talking about today is Mass Seduction by St. Vincent. Mass Seduction yep. by St. Vincent. Uh, this was the fifth studio album that St. Vincent put out. Uh, it was released on Loma Vista Records and was released October 13th, 2017. And we're going to get into all of the musicians who... Is it a long list? Buckle the hell up, my guy. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. Annie Clark, guitar, vocals, synthesizers, bass. Tuck Andress, guitar. Patty Andress, vocals. Jenny Lewis, vocals. Kid Monkey, vocals. Taco Yasuda, uh, vocals. Jack Anantoff, uh, synthesizers, programming, bass, drums, string arrangements, Mellotron, uh, and piano. Daniel Minstries, synthesizer. Lars uh, Stafflor's synthesizer programming. Soundwave programming. Adam Pictorial programming. Thomas Barlett, piano synthesizers. Bobby Sparks, keyboards. Mike Elizondo, bass. Uh, Pino Paldino, bass. Greg Les, s s uh, pedal steel. <sighs> Gotta take a breath. <laughs> Rich uh, Hinman, pedal steel. Evan Smith, saxophone. Camsey Washington, saxophone. Margaret, strings. Uh, Philip A. Peterson, cello. And Timothy Garland, violin. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so this was uh, the first album by St. Vincent that was produced by Jack Antoff. Um, he's of bleachers and fun fame. Okay, yeah. Um, and Annie Clark, St. Vincent. Um, that, it was produced by those two in, in tandem. 
Um, so St. Vincent started off as Annie Clark's kind of solo project um, after she was in a few bands early on, and then she actually toured, um, was a touring member of, of Sufjan Stevens' band. Oh, really? Uh, in 2004 and five, mm-hmm. until she released her first solo work in 2006 as St. Vincent. Uh, and before then, um, she started being part of the music biz because she was a roadie for her aunt, uncle Tuck and Patty, who feature on this, um, because uh, they are uh, her aunt and uncle. And so Tuck and Patty are well-known jazz um, duet that, mm-hmm. that travel and do that. So that's how she kind of got started in the music business itself, was, was being a roadie for her uh, aunt and uncle. After that, you know, as one does, attends Berkeley School of Music and then dropped out after three years. As one does. As one does, because uh, she felt like it taught the aesthetics of music rather than how to actually produce and create hmm. music. Um, and so this album specifically um, is the follow-up to St. Vincent, which was widely considered one of the best albums of 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I go kind of... That's factual, by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, before I go any further, what's your what's your uh, experience with St. Vincent? Um, well, uh, if we're going all the way back, <laughs> uh, I had a crush on a girl in high school, and she listened to St. Vincent. Like, St. Vincent it was probably her favorite musician um and uh me being a snotty little 16 year old uh male uh thought it was cool to uh dislike everything that she liked that's how that's how you get people to like you actually yeah yeah uh very weird uh teenagers are so fucking weird dude um just small adults (laughs) who don't know what they're doing yeah so uh, but secretly, I was like, "The shit slaps." <laughs> I, kid, I kid you not. I, w- I would like. Uh, I w- she would play Saint Vincent like uh, in her car, and I would be like, "This is so good." Uh, no, wait, I have to not like this. I don't know what that switch in my brain was and why it got flipped. But anyway, so you first heard that through Saint Vincent, right? And yeah. that, and that was ma- ma- mostly music from her first album. Uh which I can't remember the fucking name of. Uh, but it's got Chloe in the Afternoon and Cruel and, like... Yeah. Uh, some other bangers on it. Anyway. Uh, then, fast forward a few years. I don't remember at what point I actually sat down with that album. Marry Me is the name of the album. Really? Yeah. Maybe it's not her first album. Uh... Keep, keep going. Yeah. Anyway, uh, at some point in my early 20s, I was like, St. Vincent, I should uh, actually listen to that. Um, and then I did. And it was stellar. Um, Strange Mercy. Strange Mercy. Yeah. That's the one. Third album. Third album. I thought I thought it was her first album. Uh, <laughs> well, that also explains. I, I Although I thoroughly enjoy all of the St. Vincent that I listen to, yeah. I have really only listened to three albums, including Mass Seduction. And, I, and I'm assuming it's Strange Mercy, St. Vincent, and Mass Seduction. That's true. I've only listened to St. Vincent and Mass Seduction. Okay. Um, yeah, I came into St. Vincent on the self-titled St. Vincent, which... That entire album is basically her pretending to be a, a, a cult leader, which is fantastic. Yeah. Like, that's the musicality 
of the entire thing. Uh, some really good album art work as well to kind of drive home that kind of cult leader right. status. She's just like sitting on a throne yeah. with like this wild uh, outfit and hair, and it's, it, good. it's a good time. Yeah, dyed white <laughs> hair and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like both of us are kind of in that like d- did not hop on super early. Strange Mercy was the highest rated um, ranking album that she had on, you know, the Billboard Top 200 when mm-hmm. it first came out, which was 19th. And then F- St. Vincent, uh, the self-titled, came out and that hit 14. And then Mass Seduction came out and hit 10. Mm. So we're kind of following along with the, as more popular, more people kind of catching along right. and, and, and figuring out what she's up to. Uh, one of the big the selling points of St. Vincent in general is that her lyrics are uh, polysemic, which is means that it's a word or a phrase that has multiple meanings on purpose. Mm-hmm. So instead of like how um, in the English language, multiple um, spellings of a word can mean multiple different things, but not on purpose. It's, it's the opposite. So she actively chooses words that could have multiple right. meanings within the same context of the sentence. Right. Um, and one of the reasons that she does it um, in an interview, she said that she thinks um, any person who gets panic attacks or has an anxiety can, disorder can understand how things all of a sudden turn very quickly and that she thinks she's uh, sublimating that into the music that she makes. Mm. Um, if you had to guess what the most compared to artist that St. Vincent has been like who people can compare St. Vincent to the most oh. is who do you think that would be? Um, shit. Uh, my first instinct is David Bowie, but I don't know if that would be right. Yeah. Yep. yeah? So the majority of people say the female David Bowie. All right. Um, and so a long, a large part of the uh, press cycle for mass seduction was St. Vincent kind of making fun of press cycles and doing little snippets of like reporter inserts vaguely sexist comment yeah, to you and she responds to that. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things also where it's like, yeah, people don't know how to describe her. So she's like, eh, it's the female David Bowie. Oh. Oh, yeah. Um, but also cited Kate Bush, Jimi Hendrix as big influences mm-hmm. and then, Talking Heads, Patti Smith, and Pink Floyd as well as kind of big musical influences. Speaking of Talking Heads, I know that she's done an album with David Byrne, mm. and I uh, that's probably going to be the next thing I listen to of hers. Right, yeah. Um, that makes sense. Also, I want to interject real quick that yeah. uh, Ivory and I, like, not joking, fully, sincerely, completely serious, need Mitski and St. Vincent to go on a, head- a co-headlining Ooh. tour. That would uh, be good. It would be really good. That would be a, that's a good co-headliner. They, they right complement each other. Yeah. They would complement each other so well. Yeah, it'd be it'd be a good time. That needs to happen. Yeah. Um, so these are the most personal lyrics that Saint Vincent has ever really written about. Um, Saint Vincent usually takes a uh, theme, a thematic idea for each album mm-hmm. and and goes into it. And this one was kind of like love and loss and being in the limelight and all the stuff that comes from that. So it's a, it's a bit self autobiographical, but not overly self autobiographical. 
um this feels like a more serious this is just something that i kind of felt listening through this album it feels like a more serious take on uh um oh fuck it's a beck album this feels like a more serious take on uh midnight vultures by beck oh okay yeah yeah because a good uh, a, a good portion of that album is dedicated to simultaneously like celebrating and making fun of sex mm. uh and i yeah. yeah i mean just the lyrics to some of the lyrics from mass seduction the, the t- title track is like this feels like sex laws by beck but like <laughs> just a, a di- like an equally as good sequel to that song right yeah um and one of the we'll get into kind of like what we think about the album in general but one of the main reasons that uh saint vincent went with uh jack anatoff is because he's done a bunch of really high quality pop production mm-hmm. um you know like he's produced i think he's produced for like Katy perry um mm-hmm. and stuff like that's so like this is definitely like yeah. the poppiest yes album uh, of hers that i've heard and the reason that they kind of vibed so quickly and, and most of jack's work kind of came on the production of the drums mm-hmm. and the the synthy aspects of it as well is that it helped um saint like annie clark write songs that kind of went for the jugular a bit more mm-hmm. in, in her own terms uh with how much emotion is being in there, but also the amount of production that is in there. Like, if we're going to go, we're just going to fucking go. We're going to go straight at you. And it is, it, it's a maximalist album, if I've ever heard one. There's so much production going on outside of, like, one or yeah. two songs. It's a dance, synth dance disco 80s pop rock with, like, a deep, deep sadness just right underneath the surface. Right. And it is it is well done. A it, well done it, album. If it hasn't been picked up by now, dear listener, uh, we both thoroughly enjoyed this album. Uh, at least last uh, last I heard from you. <laughs> uh, this w- album was a... Like, I knew what to kind of expect going in with St. Vincent. Because another thing that uh, St. Vincent is really well known for is just very creative and innovative guitar mm-hmm. as well. Um kind of the most forefront of pop musicians using guitar as kind of their main instrument. Yeah, absolutely. And the guitar is so stripped back in this album, which I wasn't expecting, but it increases the impact of the the guitar work that she does have in it the entire time. Also, when it's present, it's very heavily affected, which, like, isn't that weird for her. No, 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 Um, no. But, uh, yeah, uh, I know that, like... um, strange mercy era she was writing music like she would program stuff into midi yeah and then learn to play it on guitar and that was part Mm. of sort of like what made her approach to playing guitar so unique interesting um which uh i love and i've sort of that's uh, really cool (laughs) i've sort of adapted that myself a little bit but Mm. like that's uh a really interesting thing but yeah definitely less present yeah. guitar on this one but i think the way that they use synthesizers and the way that they layer so many different um instruments and instrumentational ideas and musical movements throughout it all does yeah. not make you feel like you're missing the guitar at, at all right um, which i think is a very impressive aspect and also highlights how how good her voice is i never really pegged saint vincent as one of the better singers 
yeah. and, and kind of like rock pop, but this album, she, her voice really shines. Yeah, she's definitely got her... Um, what am I trying to say? Uh, I don't mean this disparagingly at all, but she sort of has like a... a um, an identity with her voice in terms of um, what she sings. A thing, a shtick. The notes that yeah. she decides to sing. Um, it, and yeah, it's not like, you know, I wouldn't... She's not the first vocalist I would choose for some like majorly impressive, like super technically impressive vocal section. Right. But uh, she knows what she can do really well. And she does that really well. And she uses that very consistently. I think she also is able to get emotion out of her vocal performance a lot better than something like say last week, Tom Rosenthal's emotion attempt to get emotion out of his vocal performance kind of fell flat in some places yeah um and you know like eddie vetter for pearl jam oh my god he also has kind of a very distinct very distinct voice but it doesn't use it to the best of his ability in that album either, you know? Right. Um, so I think that is also a really high, high quality um, aspect of this album. Also, just everything about it feels like it's a, a culmination of what the first half of the 2010s in, in pop and rock music was kind of all synthesizing together and, and culminating in the sound that is different throughout every yeah, single song i so again i've only listened to three saint vincent albums so i'm not you know i'm not in any kind of authority talking about this but uh right. you haven't listened to strange mercy no. so you don't know that it's in sound drastically different from her self-titled saint right vincent. no i I, um, I feel like i've I definitely did one of those, like, go back and listen to a few things, and it was just like, oh, that's interesting. That sounds different. Um, So Mass Seduction, to me, uh, at least having listened to other St. Vincent, um, feels like a continuation of that album, um, just sonically. Right. Um, That, yeah, listening through this album for the first... Actually, the first time I listened to this album, uh, Ivory and I were going camping, and... uh, we need i it was like i needed to download stuff cuz we were going to go out of cell reception so i just right. like grabbed a couple of playlists and then i was like uh yeah let me just grab some albums uh oh i need to catch up on st vincent right um and that was the first time i listened to this album and it was yeah the first time listening to it i was like okay so this is more st vincent album era mm-hmm. uh sound right um but yeah it's so <sighs> This album's great. Like it's, it's yeah. It's it's um it makes sense that it's more kind of personal. Um especially considering you're talking about like how a lot of the songs have these different movements that it that are fairly drastic. Yeah. Uh for how different they are from each other that that it seamlessly transitions through. Um and there's kind of this underlying thread through the entire album. Yeah. Um and there are a couple of songs where it'll kind of pull back to that uh without um you know uh, without being cheesy. 
Yeah, no, I think this rides the line between overly sweet and deeply emotional in mm-hmm. its lyricism, in its instrumentation choices, and its production choices. Mm-hmm. That I think this is an album that you definitely need to listen to more than once to get kind of the full everything that's going on because it is overly produced, not in a bad way, but in a, in a in very an intentional, in, in a very intentional and very well done way. Um, to kind of kind of get everything, uh, so let's get into it. You know, let's let's start at the very start with one of the better uh, one of the better starting tracks. I think we've we've listened to on yeah on tape makers. It's definitely one of the more low energy tracks. Yeah, but um, also it it does such a good job of setting the 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 vibe for right. the album. It's uh, great. Hang on me. could write good good lyrics <laughs> like that's kind of like emotional like a deeply moving lyrics like that's kind of what and i think that's why um i kind of said this album feels like it's kind of a synthesis of a lot of um early tens pop and rock music right kind of kind of put together because it does have that very fun bleachers general pop um production mm-hmm. that is is very been very prevalent a little bit of imagine dragons also but you know good yeah. uh, with, right. the, with the with the electric drums heavy synth kind of synth droppy stuff mm-hmm. some guitars kind of slightly in the background um creating just some nice uh emotional feel on it but her voice just kind of it it feels like there's more truth to it than some other stuff sometimes mm-hmm. does i guess i don't know um what do you think um, I think that it's a great start to the album. Not, um, I feel like it's a very standard thing to sort of come out of the gate swinging, especially on kind of a more poppy album, um, or to go totally the other direction and have a song that's very, uh, very low energy or more, uh, intimate or more kind of, uh, um, more personal and sort of like feels like a prologue almost. Right, setting you up um, for the eventual what we're gonna get to. This lands perfectly between those. Right. Not not perfectly in the middle, <laughs> yes. but but perfectly between them where it's uh, it it legitimately feels like the intro to the album right um but not something that you know you would skip to get to the good stuff right it's like <laughs> it's part of the good stuff but it it's also setting the table right type thing uh it's and what it's setting the table for is pills which, which i okay the first the very first time i heard this song i was like this is annoying as fuck not mm. not but like you know, you'll you'll hear. I'm sure it'll be present in the snippet that he chose. That 
the the very first time I heard it, heard it, I was like, I was like, this chorus is annoying as fuck, but not like, uh, not to the point that I was like, oh, what the fuck is this? But it was just like, there was part of me that knew that there was intention behind it. I just didn't have the patience to search for it the very mm. first time I listened to it. Uh, but I love this song, and the chorus, yes. it's it, like, ob- you know, uh, it's very very clear. The intention behind this sort of obnoxious, repetitive chorus uh, is that it's like this alarm that's constantly going off to remind you that you need to take your meds all the time. That that, um, all of the different vocal lines, as they build up in the chorus, start to jump over each other and jump over each other and jump over each other the the whole time as well. Um, That's just also, I think, a really good production choice because it's the anxiety that the need for um our culture to just like medicate itself away from everything right um and any potential issue that you might have in your life whether that's depression anxiety eating uh weight uh familiar hard yeah uh (laughs) like anything like oh no it's fine like we can just write you a prescription yeah uh and you know and this is what five years before like we people knew that like oxycontin was an issue but this was like three four years before like it was a legal issue that the united states government was like having to to deal with type thing you know like right um yeah no i think it's it's this great piece of satirical political commentary within the um, right within the song as well and just a not what you would expect as, as the second song on the album uh, coming from hang on me you know a little bit more chilled laid back vibe right. to just like in your face well that's I, I think that that yeah. sort of juxtaposition is part of why that song was put in that spot on the album it's really good um and then it leads right into the title track uh mass, mass seduction uh, which again does a l- great little bit of wordplay in there, uh, where every single time on the course, the last time, um, instead of saying mass seduction, it says mass destruction. Right. And then the very last course is just mass destruction mm. the entire time. Uh, just a very, very well done uh, commentary on the over sexualization of literally anything that mm. could possibly exist. first time in the entire album we really get a, the saint vincent guitar yeah i think as for well sure. um which just like goes so well um me- meshing it at the exact same time it starts to just repeat mass destruction mm-hmm. that's the first time that's the hyper layered silky sweet overly produced everything fades away and you see this very aggressive, very angular attacking guitar. Right, come over the top of it, kind of like try to fight it back in a sense. Right, I it's it's one of those things that's hard to express unless you're talking to another guitar player. Yes, uh, we're trying but, our best. But, by the way, but 
St. Vincent, Annie Clark writes guitar solos that are so unexpected it, and it's it like fills me with joy every time oh yeah because no, it's, for sure. it's yeah she just like her approach i don't know what it is i need to do more research because i'm sure she talks about it more than what i've seen i know she has a guitar moves video yeah i think she does and she you know she has a signature guitar from ernie ball so obviously there's got to be some product, right. uh, promotional stuff there as well uh but yeah like her her approach to specifically writing guitar solos is so unique um and i greatly appreciate that yeah and it's so refreshing too yeah well i I think the best way i can kind of describe it is that it's a synthesization and a meshing of kind of that more late 60s guitar solo bit uh specifically i'm thinking of the rolling stones their guitar solos where it's about four to five second little guitar licks, and then they don't sustain the notes. Yeah, I was going to say that part of it is definitely that she doesn't hold notes for very long, yeah. generally, and also that she leaves a lot of space. Yeah. Um, um, so I think it's a throwback to kind of that stuff. Uh, the nods to Jimi Hendrix being a, a guitar influence, I think, are obviously there as well, because that's something Jimi Hendrix was really, really good at mm-hmm. as well, uh, was knowing when to have the full have the note go on forever and full sustain and, mm-hmm. and full everything but then also when to kind of get a little more attacky with um the licks that he he specifically was playing and whatnot um and also it feel and it makes sense that you know kind of writing it in midi and having her background in berkeley college of music right it feels a little bit math rocky as well like it's so precise yeah, and how the uh, lick is written, and it it aesthetically and musically makes so much sense. And then she puts just the correct amount of Hendrix E esque overdone fuzz, right. overly aggressive, if, if Velcro-y. So if if Josh Homme's guitar solos are, uh, if Josh Homme's guitar solos are him intentionally trying to annoy you, uh, Annie Clark's guitar solos are her. Uh, telling you that she truly does not give a fuck what you think. Exactly. It's big, like, oh, I didn't know you were there energy. Yeah. Um, but also just like, yeah, just a, just a great, uh, another really good song with the use of very minimal lyrics in general and mm-hmm. kind of the main focus being on this repeating chorus that changes over time. Another um, just... Not what you would expect, but really well done. Uh, so we're going to skip Sugar Boy and switch over to Los Angeles. Uh, Jared, what what are your thoughts on Los Angeles? Um, I this is one of the standout tracks on this album, mm. which is saying a lot. That yes, that is definitely saying a lot. Um, the uh, oddly enough, I very I very kind of specifically remember the first time hearing a lot of these songs. Uh, I don't know if it something something about listening to that album like two or three times on the way out to that camping trip and then listening to it again. It's just like I specifically remember the first time I heard whatever it is. Right. The first time I heard the chorus to this song, I was like that uh, like that that sort of like stopping partway through a sentence and then repeating it with more words. Mm. While it's been done before, I don't know that it's ever been done to this proper of an effect.
Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the it's one of the better oh. choruses. Also, it it goes along with this entire thematical aspect of this entire album being like. Yeah, it's, it's a song about Los Angeles, but also it's a song about, like, losing your fucking mind a little bit and losing someone that you love and, like, getting disconnected from the reality that you thought you had. And the way that they produce the vocals as well, it makes you feel a little uneasy, but not in a way where you're like, oh, they're talking about Los Angeles. Like, you right. know, there's something deeper there. Uh, well, uh, uh, I might not fade out uh, the... <laughs> I might not fade out the track just because... Uh, if I don't know if we left enough time on it, but the that that chorus specifically coming out of that chorus into that verse where it's just the guitar, uh, it sounds it sounds like a baritone almost, mm. uh, uh, but where it's just like the the program drum and the and the guitar and her voice yeah. after that full blown chorus, it's so good. Uh, if you're listening, you can't see, but I was freaking the fuck out while were, that was going on. You were, you, it's the moment when music hits you in that just like right certain way. Every, every time yeah. I listen to that song and that part happens, I'm like, oh, it's so good. You're just fist pumping. You're like, fuck uh, it. They yeah. did it again. They did it again. <laughs> uh, but the, the chorus, what I wanted to bring up specifically about the lyrics in the chorus. Yeah. Um, is the uh, you you mentioned earlier the idea of uh, words having multiple meanings um, and and phrases having multiple meanings and what I love about this chorus is that with each repetition of the phrase and each adding of information to the phrase yeah the meaning changes every single time yeah and uh, and it's not like. It's not like she cut off the sentence partway through and you know that there's going to be more to the sentence coming. Right. It's that this is one statement, and now this is a different statement that includes that first statement, but changed it. And now this is another statement yeah. that, that did this uh, fucking nesting doll situation. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's a all thousand up and down percent. the street. It's so, it's so good. It's so clever. Uh, it physically hurts me. It's, I love this song. Uh, such a good song. Um, and then going from one of the one of the bigger songs on the album, I'd say, like just just in sense of full production in scale, yeah. in scale to the smallest, the most intimate. Also, honestly, the most intimate Annie Clark song that Saint Vincent has put out. Um, Happy birthday, Johnny. Yeah. Uh, in interviews, uh, uh, Annie Clark herself has said like. Johnny isn't a single person like we've all known a Johnny. Mm-hmm. Like Johnny is just a a stand-in for that that person, that person that we're we love and we're in a relationship with, and or are no longer or in a no longer in a relationship with, uh, or or like used to know and just like really want them to be doing okay. That's really intriguing to learn because there is a song on Saint Vincent the album mm-hmm. uh, called Prince Johnny. That's right. Uh, you know, there's there's no there's no mincing of words. There's no way that that could be misconstrued as no, a no, separate no. Uh, ide- a separate entity. Well, also, um, Saint Vincent's most recent album that got put out, um, and I haven't checked that out. And I forget the name of it at the uh, no. Duh, I'm gonna look it up real quick. But anyways, um, the entire uh, Daddy's Home, mm-hmm. which is all about 
which her. is almost what we listen to instead. Yes, I, I decided on Mass Seduction instead of Daddy's Home, and I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know why, but that's okay. Um, that entire album is her dealing with the fact that her father um, was in jail for seven years and is now coming out of jail. Oh, yeah. All right. So I think Johnny is a, a overarching um, understanding of maybe maybe some toxic men in her life always for show no true charity you saw me on magazines and tv but they only knew the real version of me only you know the secrets the swamp and the fear what happened to blood our family how could you do this to me? Of course I blame me When you get free Yeah, and so this is just an entire song about this person that, you know, um, it doesn't matter what happens in your life, you kind of see them fail and no matter what happens in your life, you, you see this person go through whatever, um, you see them succeed or you see them fail. And no matter the success that you have, you are still just kind of thinking of them and mm -hmm. you check in on them every now and then. And either they are, they're bitter, um, for whatever reasons. And, you know, they hold on to the, the, uh, anger and frustration that they feel within their own selves and they project it onto you. Like it's, I think it's just one of the well-written song and to yeah. put it on this album to be that vulnerable while still having that kind of like shield of, well, it could be about, you know, we all know a Johnny. It was <laughs> we all know a Johnny. This definitely isn't about a specific person. Not at all. Uh, not, not accusing Annie Clark of anything. No, not at all. Um, Annie Clark would never. Yeah, I... There's one other, you know, um, kind of uh, piano ballad uh, songs on this album. Yeah. Uh, I far prefer this one. Um, I think that the other one, we'll get to it. Um, Later, yeah. I can't remember what the name of it is. I believe right it's now. Slow Disco. Uh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Uh, yeah. the This one, I think, is far better both lyrically and... Uh, um, in terms of production, yeah. um, it's there are I do have gripes with the lyrics. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to get into them specifically, um, mainly because I don't have notes and so I didn't write them down. Um, <laughs> but but it, there are a handful of things that uh, you know in the same vein as uh, Tom Rosenthal, where it's like you know if you're you know, clearly the lyrics are the focus of this song. Mm. Clearly they are the priority in this song. Um, you got to make sure that they're, you know, up to snuff. And like they, uh, they absolutely work. They, they, they are absolutely emotive and they work. They're just, uh, there's sort of like a technical side of lyricism. I think that, um, right. I, that I get really picky about. I think that's probably how I'm going to refer to it from now on is technical lyricism. That's fair. I um, understand what you're saying. Where, you know, it's just sort of, um, uh, a mouthful syllables. Just too much happening in the... Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but but for the most part i think that the lyrics are pretty fucking solid on this song and and right. they do the job that that they're there for and that's what's that's what matters right yeah um i'm gonna pass over savior and uh, i think we've covered kind of what that song does in other songs uh maybe this is the piano analogy we're talking about new york I can definitely I, I guess I don't see it as a piano ballad um that's my thing is that I see it as more of like a it, it is a bit more poppy it's a bit more upbeat especially yeah, as certainly. the um electric drums kind of kick in towards the end and, and with the choruses um but I I definitely think if you're comparing emotion and lyrics and composition between um Happy birthday, Johnny in New York. Happy mm. birthday, Johnny's much better. Yeah, much better. I, I take some issue, and like obviously, you know, uh, she intentionally obscures some of the meaning behind her lyrics. Yeah. You can't you can't write uh, lyrics that are intentionally uh, uh, have a multitude of meanings um, <clears throat> without you know sort of obscuring what just what made you decide to write them in the first place, right? Um, but like oddly enough, it's kind of like the subject, okay. um, like, you know, the chorus sort of builds into, uh, uh or the, I guess it's the pre-chorus that's like, the idea is basically like, if I'm calling you at midnight, right. it's because you're the only person that I can talk to right the now. The only motherfucker in this city. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's incredibly toxic. <laughs> um, I, I agree. I think she knows that it's toxic, though. I don't think she's writing this in like a, it's a good yeah, thing. I think no. she's writing it in a, uh, a retrospective, like this is where I was in my life type um, thing. Certainly. I just, um, I don't know. There's a, there's a handful of like uh, subject matter, l like lyricism subject matter that's sort of tired to me or that mm. I'm just sort of like, I have... I don't relate to this anymore because I feel like I've grown past it. Right. Um, one of the main ones recently <laughs> is at any time somebody sings about alcohol, I'm just like, what fucking year is this? And how old are you? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's one thing to, to mention alcohol. It's another thing to be like, uh, I'm sad because I drink and I drink because I'm sad. Like, you know. I, <laughs> so what I'm hearing is we're putting the Motley, a uh, Motley Crue album on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, I get, I get what you're saying where you're just like, there's these certain subjects matters where you're just like, yeah, no, this has already been covered. Like, yeah. And did uh, you I, yeah. I think I just would have appreciated it if um, it was more obvious through the lyrics that it mm. was meant to be like, I'm viewing this, you know, I'm viewing this instance through a lens or I'm, or, Retrospectively. you know, I, I've learned since this moment in my life, it right. just sort of reads to me like, uh, you know, romanticizing, uh, only having one person in your life that you can trust, which is not a great way to live your life. Right. Um, 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, then on top of that, the fucking four on the floor kick drum every time reads is so fucking cheesy to me. I think this is where the like it's too much of a pop album comes out because this was the second single. This this is literally yeah. my least favorite song on the album. Uh, not to say that it's a bad song. I just I just think it's the worst song on the album, and I think that there's a lot of things that could have been done to make it a good song. Yeah, and this song is the first song off this album that I listened to when it first came out as a single. Oh, really? And that's the reason I stayed away from the album for a really long time. <laughs> uh, so I think I, I share some of those same feelings. Like I think I'm willing to forgive it a little bit more mm-hmm. in comparison to it as an album you know i'm like okay yeah this is the pop song it's about new york the little cliche whatever though Mm. like um i think i think i i've been won over by the album up to this point oh yeah yeah. absolutely i like uh you know i would still i would still buy this album on vinyl i'm like this like my my gripes with this song are certainly not strong enough for me to be like i i would really like to skip this song (laughs) yeah you know it's just kind of there a little bit yeah yeah no i got you um do you want to talk about any of the other songs on the album i think the only one that i really feel any level of needing to to talk about is probably probably gonna say young lover um yeah we can talk about young lover okay um for me this this is a track that's kind of just there um it's not bad um it's not one of the high points on the album uh it fits within it's cohesive with the album as a whole right and it works um it's just not one that does much for me I wanted to point this out is that like this is the most fun and most bleachersy mm. um, album on on song song on the album for me. Um, this is the most where Jack Antonoff's production I think flows through. I really like um, Fun's one album that they put out in twenty some nights, whatever it was, twenty twelve or mm-hmm. whatever. And I really really liked um, Bleacher's debut album in twenty fifteen. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, fully understanding that this is just synthy pop music and it is right. not anything more than that, but that's okay. Um, and a lot of the same sounds and ideas um, that, especially in that Bleachers album and what Bleachers has done mm-hmm. really shines through in this. So mm-hmm. it, it, that's the only reason I feel like pointing out specifically is that like, this is where you can feel the hand of the producer a little bit right. more because the rest of it feels like it's a really good meshing between what is St. Vincent, what is Jack Antonoff's production yeah. style, where this feels it's a little bit heavier towards Jack Antonoff's yeah, production I, style. Th- there's definitely nothing about this song that, that it puts me off to it. Right. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just kind of like a fun pop song that exists on this album. Um, and I'm realizing now that de- definitely this is a front heavy album for me. Yeah. I, I think it definitely, the, the bangers are in the front. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> As they say, bangers to the front. Uh, uh, yeah, what? No. Uh, <laughs> that's, um, which is not the worst thing in the world. 
Um, but it's definitely like the songs that make me love this album are are on one side of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think for me, one through eight, which New York is eight, mm-hmm. is like that is a fantastic album. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of them are just kind of there to fill the rest of the album, not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Like they're all still quality songs, but there's there's they nothing... They don't stick in your mind nearly yeah. as much as... Yeah. There's nothing that I point to where I'm like, you got to make sure you, you listen to this track past, past that. Right. Um, so yeah, so I think... You want to talk about what people thought about the album when it first came out, or do you, is there any other last things you want to talk um, about on the on the album? Any track? We skipped over Savior. I'm not going. To, let's not get into it. I just want to say that that's one of the that's one of the bangers. No, it's definitely a banger. I just the reason I didn't bring it up is because I felt like what it did we had already covered on other. Oh yeah, tracks. certainly. That's I understand why we, I understand yeah. why we skipped it. I'm not yeah. saying we need to come back to it. Savior, I'm just saying, listen to it. I'm just saying, fucking banger. <laughs> All right. So uh, when this came out, it it was released to much much uh, fanfare, yeah. much praise, much appreciation. The lowest rating that I was able to find from a reputable source is <laughs> this one that I'm going to read to you from Pitchfork. It's from Catherine Saint um, Asfa. Uh, 7.6. Annie Clark's fifth album, as St. Vincent, isn't a pop album so much as a deeply, admittedly personal commune with a pop veneer. The songs tear into the feeling of leaving and having been left alone. That's And that's the worst review you could find? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds about right. Kitty Empire for The Guardian gave it four out of five stars. And said, ironically enough, for a musician who has often written abstractly and in character throughout the course of her five albums, Mass Seduction could well be Clark's most direct record yet. It's full of giddy highs and deep sea trenches as Clark grapples with the loss of love and who is pulling the strings. Oh, forgive me. We don't have a yawn button? Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not fucking wiring that up. Um... Um, and then one that I found that doesn't have a score on it, but I thought was a really well-written one, is from Paste uh, by Max Friedman. Oh, sorry. I, that wasn't a jab. <laughs> sorry, I got to backtrack real quick. I did legit. I literally yawned. You did literally yawn. I forget, you know, the, we, we have a camera set up. We have a monitor in front of us that's showing us what we look go like. Go to the tape. But the thing is, the tape does not exist for the people listening Go follow us on Instagram. Check the tape. <laughs> this is literally... I go through, like... Josh, I go through, like, two hours of footage just to pull out, like, one 15-second clip to post to Instagram. Just pull out two, then. Yeah, I... Well, by the time I'm like, yeah, it's, I need. I should pull out another clip, it's like, oh, we're recording another episode tomorrow night. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about our social media plans off air. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so Max Friedman for Paste didn't give it a score, but I think wrote a really w- good review on it. Uh, I recommend people go read it. Uh, what I pulled from it was on Mass Seduction, Clark remains as unpredictable as ever. Though there's though there is one thing fans have always gotten r- right so far, at least Annie Clark has proven incapable of writing anything less than a knockout pop song. Yeah, I um. St. Vincent seems like one of those artists that just, uh, they just receive more acclaim with every album they release. Yes. Spoon's the same way. They're, oh, yeah. Um, they've got a new album coming out in like five days, and I'm fucking stoked! Uh, but it's, uh, 
yeah it's a similar thing with spoon where it's just like every time they release an album there are just more and more people giving it higher and higher praise giving them higher and higher praise for whatever it is same as it seems the same way the 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 streets like to say giving them their flowers they toured together yeah oh fuck i didn't oh man why did i not see them together oh my heart they fucking toured together and I didn't go see them. Oh. So, Jared, what, at, we're rating this out of 21. What? Out of 20. <laughs> All right, we can get nitty gritty with this one. All right, so I'll go first. I'll, I'll let you continue to wallow in, in past Jared's mistakes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give this a, I'm going to give this an 18 out of 21. I think, especially going over it again, the fact that all of both of us were just like, yeah, the first like half of the the album is where all the good the good stuff is, mm-hmm. um, knocks it down a bit for me. But that's really the only kind of knock I got against it. I really think the lyrics are really on point for what she's trying to go for. Uh, there might be some technical, you know, mishaps that that some people might have with it, but you know, she doesn't try to do anything too outlandish but it continues to keep it very saint vincent while having a completely different um musical aesthetic and even aesthetic in general for for her work so i'm i'm giving it an 18 out of 20 uh out of 20 or out of 21 21 21 21 uh yeah 18 out of 20 seems right to me 21 18 out of, oh 18 out of 21 never mind uh 18 out of 21 seems right to me uh it's yeah um this album feels incredibly intentional which is all that matters to me when it comes to art right um annie clark knew exactly what she was doing with this right um i think that the album's shortcomings are not uh, like i feel like the shortcomings on the album are so like barely even worth mentioning um but they are present Right. And it definitely is a front-heavy album. So, yeah, 18 out of 20 seems right. 21? 18 out of 21 also okay, seems just, right. Okay, just Either making one. sure. Okay. I don't give a fuck. Okay, well, with an 18 out of 21, uh, that puts it squarely in as the fourth best album of all time, Knocking Down, Boarding House Reach by Jack White. How do you feel about that? Hmm. Um... So it'd be between... Uh, it would be in between Let It Die by Feist and Boarding House Reach by Jack White. Ooh. Um, I think Boarding House Reach is a better album. Ooh. I disagree. I'm sure you do. I think Boarding House Reach does... is a wildly... I think Boarding House Reach is wildly ambitious but i think this album is also ambitious because this is working with a producer in a production style that annie clark has never done before it's stepping back from the guitar way more than annie clark ever has before uh and still knocking out of the park and still distinctly being a saint vincent album well i would counter that argument with what i said earlier in that this album feels like an extension sonically from saint vincent the album Mm. um I, this doesn't feel like a major departure for her, in my opinion. Uh, 
but I also know that I'm not going to sway you on this, so there it shall I, stay. I think there. I think it's just a the level of quality for like even the bad songs is so much higher than what Boarding House Reach has, and I think the high points on Mass Seduction is a lot higher than the yeah. high points on Boarding House Reach. I don't know. Um, I, I I'm I that you can convince me otherwise. This is not uh, the one I, I. This is not the the one I will. This is not the hill you'll die on. This is not the hill I die on. Um, see, I kind of feel the same way. That's the issue. <laughs> I think it, I think it's just going to stay where it is. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. With an eighteen out of twenty-one, it uh, slots in as our new number four. That's, what a lovely album to talk about. Yeah. So so it it ended up under Let It Die. Yeah, it's under Let It Die. I'm not sure how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? I think it makes sense. I. I would, Do you want to have that conversation? And we, and, well, shit. I guess we didn't have that conversation. I did didn't we? think we needed to have that conversation, but we can have that conversation. I think uh, "Let It Die" by Feist is a album as a as a whole album is much better. I don't think there is a down beat in that album in comparison to "Mass Seduction." By <laughs> yeah, Saint it's Vincent. all off beats on that album. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> about uh, off notes, man. I. Man, that's tough. Well, let's not have this conversation. You, I don't want to have do, this conversation. <laughs> it's, stay, me, it's staying where it is. Do you want me to just put three down twice? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Tape Makers. We have two number threes. All right. So, uh, yeah, Mass Seduction by St. Vincent. New Mass number four. Mass Seduction. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to go way back to the distant year of 2006. <laughs> Where it's, where some angst, angsty Portlanders wrote music about folklore. Yeah. Uh, the Crane Wife by the Sembers uh, after the break. back everyone we had a we had a fun break there uh a lot of really good discussion yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think i'll probably post that as like a separate a separate thing i don't know if you've noticed but i've started adding some of the the fun conversation bits uh at the end of... i did notice that yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so that that's that's an end that's an end bit right there for sure uh <laughs> reason to listen all the way to the very end of this podcast yeah yeah some stuff uh, you don't know but before we get there we got to get to the second album uh and the second album that we're going to be doing is the crane wife by the decemberists oh yeah uh this album was released october 3rd uh 2006 it's the fourth studio album mm-hmm. from uh the decemberists and it is their first album on Capitol records so it's their first mainstream appeal Mm-hmm. Uh, off of an indie label uh, right. okay. release. So we're going to run down who everyone is, and then we'll kind of get into some of the background of everything. So to start with, Colin Malloy uh, did vocals, guitar, bazooki, which I don't know if you know what that is. I don't know what that is. So it's a Greek uh, lute-style guitar, mm-hmm. um, stringed instrument. Okay. Uh, that has a little bit, I was, that, that that tells me what that is. Yeah, uh, it's a it's where the more metallic-y sounding um, stringed uh, stuff gets from. And he also does percussion. Uh, Chris Funk did guitar, pedal steel. Also did bazooki, uh, banjo, hammered dulcimer, the hurdy gurdy, 
percussion and backing vocals. We love a hurdy gurdy. We love a and also in Hammer Dulcimer. Hell yeah. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna call it anytime there's a hurdy gurdy on an album we have to drink. <sighs> How many times have we had hurdy gurdies though? Well, I'm not saying that it's going to happen often. I just... We just need I to want, celebrate the I occasion. I want any excuse to say hurdy-gurdy out loud. I will take any excuse to it, say hurdy-gurdy out loud. Is hurdy-gurdy the most nonsensical sounding actual instrument? It also sounds so... Like, it's such an interest... <laughs> it's like, it's got a fucking rotating yeah. drum. that It's so wild. It's such a wild instrument. Folk and instrumentation I, is just so fascinating. I feel like there is no name that fits it aside from hurdy-gurdy. Oh, yeah, no. It's like, it's so accurate. Like, you say hurdy-gurdy, and you're like, oh, it makes that sound. To the hurdy-gurdy. To the hurdy-gurdy. Um, so he plays hurdy-gurdy. He also did percussion and backing vocals. Um Jenny Conley uh, did piano, Wurlitzer, pump organ, Hammond organ, Moog synthesizer, accordion, glockenspiel, percussion, and backing vocals. Uh, Nate Query did uh, upright bass, electric bass, uh, cello, percussion, and backing vocals. And then John Moen did drums, percussion, and backing vocals. So that's the Decemberists. All right. Uh, the additional musicians who appear on this album are Laura Veers did the duet vocal on Yankee Bayonet, I Will Be Home Then. Okay. Ezra Holbrook uh, did backing vocals. Evelyn Kang did viola and violin. Christopher Walla did backing vocals and keyboards. And then Steve Droz did hand drums for him. So the Decembers originally formed uh, as a bunch of multi-instrumentalists to back up Colin Malloy's uh, solo work mm -hmm. way back in the day. Because Colin Malloy, mm -hmm. originally from Montana, but now they're based out of PDX. Okay. Um, so the Decembers are one of that wave of like, oh wow, Portland bands in the um, early uh, 2000s. Right. Uh, kind of hitting the mainstream. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is the most folk, folky folk rock group that we've covered so far. Their lyrics tend to focus mostly on actual folklore, retelling of stories. Okay, um, I see. Which not that, not folky as in the uh, it, musical genre, but no. folky as in the the lyrical content. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so in this album, the two main musical movements that the album really focuses on is a Japanese folklore tale called the Crane Wife, mm -hmm. which is um, a story of a destitute man sees a crane uh, injured, nurses it back to health. The crane leaves. Then a beautiful woman shows up, marries the man. They're still poor. She then says, okay, well, I can make some beautiful clothes. The only thing, and we can go sell it at the market. The only thing is you can never see me make the clothes. So she goes off into a back room, makes the clothes. They're beautiful. They sell it for a bunch of money. They become in insanely wealthy. And he asks her to continue to make more clothes. But then her physical form gets more weak and more weak as he's asking her to do that. Then one day, you know curiosity gets the best of him he goes mm -hmm. in while she's making the clothes and it turns out that she's actually the crane that he originally nursed back to health mm -hmm. and when she sees that he's seen the magic she flies away and that's a very classic japanese folklore tale right um the other one is uh a retelling of shakespeare's play the tempest okay yeah so that's what that um the island Right. Um, one is and then other topics that he just decides to hit on um in his lyricism is uh, the american civil war mm -hmm. the jfk assassination a romeo and juliet style uh love story mm -hmm. and uh 
the Shankill Butchers, which were an actual group of UVF loyalists um, in North Ireland. So they were loyalists to uh, England in the Troubles, mm -hmm. who became too extreme for the UVF, broke off by themselves, uh, and are credited with at least 32 murders, and specifically the uh, kidnapping and butchering of seven random people who they thought were Catholics. Wow. All right. And also the Siege of Leningrad, uh, which is considered one of the worst atrocities. Up there in the atrocities of World War II, not named the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, it's Some historians consider it a genocide. So this is a pretty uh, upbeat album, yeah, right? Yeah, so this is a super this upbeat a bright, album. fun pop album. Um, the Decemberist lyrics have always included um, references to war and violence and stuff like that because they do focus more on like traditional folklore retelling of stories mm -hmm. in their lyricism. And so typically folklore does kind of focus a little bit more on death, pain, destruction, right. sorrow, and stuff like that. Um, a little F speaking of stories, I yeah. want to bring up real quick. Yeah, that, bring up a story. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, what's his name, Malloy? Colin. Colin Malloy uh, has written a trilogy of books. I believe um, so. Yeah, I believe it's just called Wildwood or or like we will find out. Yeah, it's like Wildwood and then Return to Wildwood or something like that. Yes. Um, I got. <sighs> I was very bad about finishing books when I was a teenager, but I got like halfway through the first one. Uh, and if you have ever seen um, uh, Over the Garden Wall. Uh, yes. Yeah. If you enjoy that at all, you should read these books. Yeah. Yep. So yep. Wildwood, Under Wildwood and Wildwood Imperium. Yeah. Okay. Um, another little fun fact is that Colin Malloy's wife uh, let me pull up her name because she's not in the band. Uh, Carson Ellis mm -hmm. um, has done all of the album art for all of the Decemberist stuff um, since they started. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's a very uh, local artists making music and making art together type uh, collective. A very, very Portlandy. Right. Very Portlandy musical collective um what's your history with um with the decemberists the, yeah with the decemberists um <clears throat> i so basically i think it was 2011 when this is why we fight which was the single from one of their albums yeah um the king is dead the king is dead yeah um that was kind of uh right when i was getting into uh good music that's what that's what, right. that's when my uh my musical journey uh that's when i stepped through the wardrobe mm. and you're like oh this uh, is what right yeah. um and so i remember that song coming out and i remember i remember liking it enough to look up the music video mm. uh and nothing after that like i like i right. wasn't yeah. i wasn't like Oh, I remember making like a list of bands that I gave to my parents for Christmas, not not as a Christmas present. Yeah. But around Christmas time, they were like, what do you want for Christmas? And I just made a huge list of bands and I was like, get me any album by any of these bands. Right. And the Decemberists did not make the cut. Ah, and, but that was the only song I'd ever heard by them. Right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, my friend 
loved the decemberists and uh gave me a copy of or lent me a copy of wildwood mm. um and then i got halfway through it right. <laughs> um and that's and i and i believe yeah basically that's my entire history right. up until okay. up until we pick this album. right so my history is uh this the decemberists were always like in the periphery of stuff i was kind of listening to and people that i was sharing similar musical interests with they're like oh you should right. really get into december so i when i was like you know what i should really get into vinyl and i should buy some new vinyl i kind of just like took the plunge on what a terrible world what a beautiful world by the decemberists mm -hmm. which is the album that they released after they went on a hiatus okay after they released uh the king is dead so after this is why we fight okay then they took a break and then they, they took a hiatus an and then this one and i was like oh wow this is like some really really interesting stuff i should get into some of their earlier stuff and so then i got into um oh geez what it, is it called there's a very specific term for it malignant <laughs> uh her majesty the decemberists ah, okay. uh, which is their third album and that's when i was like oh this is like there's something special here there's like something this is very different than what i had just listened to because by that time it had become more of a self-introspective band uh right. lyrically uh, a little bit more focused on the simpler rock um focus uh folk rock focus for some of its right. stuff but still it, it has some of the interesting musicality that mm -hmm. um you know the december spy so going back to something that is like oh this is like very different you know the, the first song on that album starts with a blood-curdling scream <laughs> and it is about um you know stowaways on a um not not so always i think it's something like that so people on a boat who don't want to be on a boat mm -hmm. and uh meet a terrible end and stuff like that um and since then you know like i've dabbled in a, a bunch of their different albums and some of their greatest hits but this is the great wife was one of those albums that like i've listened to the hits off of multiple times but i never took the time to listen to all the way through right before this um yeah, so the interesting thing about this album is uh, Colin Malloy uh, picked up the bazooki, uh, which I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and right before uh, starting recording songs for this album. Okay. And it shows up on two songs. Mm -hmm. One is Sons and Daughters. Okay. And that's when he only knew how to play two chords. <laughs> And so that's why it's a two-chord song. Right. And by the time he learned a third chord, they recorded The Korean Wife 3. And that's why that's a three-chord song. <laughs> like, that's just a fun, like, that's just kind of what they do. They're like, okay, let's just introduce right. this new thing that we don't really know how to play, but we think will make interesting music right. for it. Um, and then a just note for how we're going to be talking about this album on Spotify. It includes a song at the very end called Calling of the Fold, which is a fine song. But that was only an exclusive to Tower Records, which, so if you bought a CD from Tower Records at the time, that'd right, be the that only one that had it. And then Tower Records went out of business in 2006. Right. Okay. So. Interesting. So. Uh, not that that would not be the version that the majority of people listened to. And that was not the original uh, set list either. So it right. ends with Sons and Daughters originally. Yeah, see that. So you texted me about this, and I we uh, uh, we established how it would be. I I think with um, 
uh, pieces of a man. Yes, we did. Um, where there were, <clears throat> I think, four tracks at the end of the Spotify album. Three. Uh, three tracks at the end, uh, which uh, I thoroughly enjoyed, but were not on the original release of the album. And so, so therefore, we can't. were not considered when we were scoring it. Yeah, so we're doing the same thing here. Right. Um, what are your... What are your takeaways of this album? Um, I really enjoyed this album. I'm very glad that I, uh, I, I always say this. I'm uh, when I'm when I'm pleasantly surprised by an album doing this. I'm like I, I'm very glad I was forced to listen to this album. Right, because it's not something you would have ever seeked out for yourself. Right, um, and I. This is why we fight is an okay song. Okay, it does not at all. It like it, it hurts me to my core that that is the only song I knew by them for so long mm. because uh, I also brought up to uh, I brought up to my friend that I had that we were reviewing this and that it was really good yeah. and he was like, wait, wait, you've never listened to a Decemberist album before. <laughs> Uh, and then he started playing me some some choice cuts uh, from some of their earlier stuff, and I was like, "Yeah, this is like, this is why we fight." Just like doesn't uh, <clears throat> I was it's, gonna say it betrays their sound, but that's uh, I don't think contextually it, that phrase means different things. I think. Yeah, no, I don't think uh, it betrays their sound. I think it is a very different. It's a very different time in the. It's a very different time. It's a very different place. You know, this that was the album before they went on hiatus, so I'm sure there was some just, like, burnout from being the Decemberists, mm -hmm. um, being one of the, like, biggest alt-rock bands for an entire decade, mm -hmm. um, putting on incredible live shows. Like, they go all out on their live shows, like, mm -hmm. set decorations, like... Oh, yeah. So I can just imagine that they were just a little burned out at that point, you right. know? So, um, but yeah, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you kind of got forced into listening <laughs> to other Decemberist songs. Yeah. Um, I think this album still really holds up. Um, yeah, definitely. It does not feel as old as a 2006 album. Um, I think there are definitely some things like the, the focus on the acoustic, uh, the lesser production, um, in comparison to you know, like a 2022, there are some album. very interesting production decisions that we'll bring up when we get to them. But... I really like a lot of the production decisions, but the, I think that's like kind of the only place you can really see it as not being a modern album. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, um, but outside that, like it, it whole it holds up, man. Like, yeah, it is so I, so good. Um, folk rock is a genre that I tire of very easily, very quickly. Um, <clears throat> just, just because like, you know, it was such a big thing when we were teenagers and I listened oh, yeah. to, and, and it was, you know, when I was learning how to play guitar on a shitty acoustic guitar. And so like, right. I learned a bunch of stuff, uh, and then <clears throat> fast forward a few years and I realized kind of how boring a lot of it is to me. Yeah. I, <sighs> Yeah, this album is really fucking good. It's very I, refreshing. Um, listening, basically, the I spent the last week, uh, it, like I'm gonna have trouble with track names on this album too, yeah, just because okay. like I would just listen to Mass Seduction and the Crane Wife, uh, 
back to back like two or three times a day for the last week right like it was just constantly going because it wasn't it didn't feel like homework right whereas jimmy yeah. buffett did and so i put it that off as long as i could felt like yeah no it, it's i think these two albums do a really good job of kind of exploring pop mu- pop music in general because this is like it is a pretty pop mm-hmm. album overall even though it still is within kind of folk rocky the ways that it can be explored in so many different ways whereas mass seduction is so overproduced and overwrought with so many beautiful things that it does in it right whereas this is a lot more sparse it's a lot more open it's lyrically so much different than almost anything we've talked about i think i don't think we've talked we've talked about an album where the person writes from not a first person perspective for the entirety of the album Mm -hmm. really um or at least like a this is stuff that happened to me type thing you know right it's, it's about other stories other events that happen yeah this is this is yeah. retelling stories that already exist yeah um so let's get into it with the uh the start the crane wife three uh so they do a, a little interesting thing here where the crane wife three starts the album the crane wife one and two comes later in the album mm-hmm. uh i think it really sets the correct tone mm-hmm. for the album as well um the bazooki being the the main focus on of that uh which before i listened to it or read up about it and was like oh it's actually a different instrument i was like how do they get a parlor acoustic guitar to sound like that like, right yeah. no i had the same yeah. thing i was like is that a is that a mandolin that's that's not a man that's not the register of a mandolin right so it's like uh, how ca- how capoed up is this on right the, on, yeah <laughs> um but yeah so i think it uh yeah like just a, a fantastic start and also like from from the off just fucking good bassist man god god damn Till Fred Bear she grew willingness to be like hey bassist you take the the lead right. on, on on this breakdown uh yeah i uh oh a 12 string was the other thing that i thought potentially oh, yeah, that no, was i could definitely see it as a 12 string yeah. i was like is this a wait mandolins mandolins have eight strings is this a 16 <laughs> string baritone mandolin <laughs> I, was, I was like what the fuck is that um the uh this song feels like it singularly uh Man, sometimes I listen to myself afterward and I'm like, fuck my vocab words, dude. Like, I don't oh, need same. to get to this really, but I'm going to go with it anyway. It feel to- like it singularly encapsulates so well uh-huh. uh, what was so good about that sort of folk rock explosion of the early to mid 2000s. Yes. Um, in In the sort of like, you know, more standard song structures. I'm not like... 
you know, if you're kind of like excluding folk punk and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more, more within the the pop yeah. music, uh, radio friendly folk rock. Um, yeah, I I feel like the you know this song hits uh, aesthetically hits all of the right notes in that regard. Um, but it's so, yeah, it's just a good song. It makes me feel good, even though it's not. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Like, but it also builds in like exactly the way you would want it to build. Um, it has the exact right harmonizing that you would want it to have. Yeah. That's the, it, it, it's so odd because I kind of, I, I kind of expected uh, this album to feel a bit predictable like you know because again my only exposure was this is why we fight which you know just felt like every other song on 94.7 at the time yeah um, it, it was uh, that's kind of what I went into it expecting and the fact that you know it's like this this is such a straightforward maybe it's just that I haven't listened to this kind of music in a long time but it, I don't know this song really fucking did it for me no yeah well it, it's also the fact that like it uh, you kind of know what's coming next but you kind of want them to do exactly what's going to happen yeah. next you're like no please give it to me oh you gave it to me thank you so much for doing that right um yeah, and then that goes straight into the island slash come and see slash the landlord's daughter slash you're not feeling you'll not feel the drowning, which is this. It's a 12 minute song that is basically just a retelling and reimagining of Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, which fucking earns every second of that 12 minutes. Oh, my God. Like. I like so I'm not I'm not there are a lot of people who will see a 12 minute track on an album and they'll be like oh no <laughs> right um I am certainly not one of those people but I cuz you have to decide to write to, to make a song 12 minutes long right you have to like anything over anything over 6 minutes that's intentional that that's like I am just like there is reason behind this being this long and that always excites me. Right. Um, and sometimes maybe a lot of the time uh, that reason is not good enough for right. it to be that long. <laughs> right. Uh, <clears throat> it certainly helps that this 12 minute track is really in four sections. Yeah. Th and that's something that they really like doing as well as kind of sectioning off. Um long right. songs into shorter aspects. The, the intro bit, the, the come and see bit, mm -hmm. um, kind of the, the coming to the island right. bit, uh, they do such a good job in, in the section that we just played right there, kind of making you feel like you are kind of lost in the waves and this electric guitar just kind of wailing yeah. back and forth, uh, feeling like you're it's, you're on the waves. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about how I was going to talk about this song for a while and like this section is so, uh, it's 
Uh, it's so bluesy without being bluesy. Ooh, that's a really good description. Yeah. Um, like it's, uh, it's got it's got a blues attitude to it. It's got a uh, it's got a blues feel and very like bluesy instrumentation. Yeah. Uh, but without uh, sort of relying on any of kind of the tired tropes. I mean, there's some, but it, but it's so <sighs> it's it doesn't fall back on the blues rock a a a a b b b a a a b c a like that kind of like twelve bar bluesy yeah, type stuff. It's, yeah, it's got a very like you know it's just one of those things that like it starts playing and you can't help but start bobbing your head yeah and like i don't give a f- I, I don't care who you are it's so like uh you is just want to sit yeah. there you want to sit in it for so long and then from there it switches just and then it all falls away is very consistent with the decembers is that they get very bombastic with their songs yeah that surprised me too the yeah. the dynamics in this album are incredible um i really was not expecting uh, that was the other thing too is that there are a couple of decembers albums that uh ivory's listened to mm-hmm. a lot uh and that you know, you know it was kind of like something that she listened to in high school and so you know it's only Continues something listen she listens to when yeah. she thinks of it yeah you know it's not like in her regular rotation is all i'm trying to say and so it was like you know we're uh we're doing a december album like i've been playing this both of these albums in the living room yeah uh on my on my new speakers we got Ooh. new floor, floor speakers uh but like you know my my household has been listening to both of these albums a lot yeah and ivory showed me a, a few also choice cuts from a different album hell yeah um and yeah i just uh i'm continually surprised by yeah how bombastic they'll get how yeah. um how driving and high energy and and uh, uh like uh aggressive uh and like aggressively big <sighs> it's big yeah it's yeah. big I, I feel like they embrace their role as storytellers yeah certainly um, they're definitely using the music to tell the story yeah so we're moving on to a, another section of the same 12-minute track. Yeah. I was a Rambo Down by the water Fight and save the landlord's daughter. That transition from the uh, come and see yeah. aspect to the landlord's daughter. Hello, is, three four. Oh God, it's uh, it's so good. Also, because it it is full band, the fullest the band can possibly get with the the right. five members, and it just falls away and it's just call and it drops yeah. out to something that you wouldn't necessarily expect right uh that that organ uh first of all ah bless up so good uh but like 
I don't know. That's just not what I, you know, if you told me like, hey, this folk rock band has this song where they're all going really hard and then it all sort of drops out and I'd be like to an acoustic guitar and a voice. <laughs> you and it's know? like, no, it's, it's a picked acoustic that uh, feels very muted and also an organ going along with it. And also, hey, there's switching time signature between right. sections. Yeah. Um, I also really like, one of the reasons I really like Colin Malloy's voice is that he knows exactly where to place it, where it feels like it's about to go out of his register. Yeah, he's got, um, he definitely has a very distinctive voice while also, um, uh, his, uh, vocal inflection, um, it's, it's got a sort of like Midwest emo sort of Mm. drawl is the wrong word, but the, the, um, uh, almost the accent that he sings with. Yeah. Uh, it's the Montana in him, man. Apparently. <laughs> uh, and I think that was one of the things that kind of put me off when I was That's younger, fair. too. Yeah. Uh, it's a very distinctive voice. Yeah. Um, but it, oh, it works so well in this context. a little bit of like prog rocky art rocky in this song as well which is so good and then that just like that he does he just Mm -hmm. holds it like a powerful powerful 70s power ballad singer right Um, uh but it but it's like pure falsetto like it's that's uh yeah i don't know that's that's part of uh, that's part of what makes it work to me i don't know it's part of the appeal he he never really gets aggressive with his vocals Mm -hmm. um he lets the yeah. aggressiveness happen elsewhere, yeah. Um, so we're, we're getting close. We're, we're now going to switch to about nine minutes into the song. <laughs> I will dress your eyelids With dimes upon your eyes Lay Close to water, greed your grave will rise. Go to sleep now, little ugly. Go to sleep now. And the decision that they had there to um, go to a more traditional, just picked right. finger pick guitar, but made it so much warmer than any of the other acoustics that you've heard. Yeah. His voice, the way his inflection, uh, you feel like a little bit of menace in it as well and the the hits of the piano just oof right it's um you know like i said earlier if you told me that they went from a full band and it all drops out I would, and i would be like oh yeah to to acoustic guitar and a voice right <clears throat> the thing is like that you know again we're 9 minutes into a 12 minute track and it's so earned by that point like it's right. so like yeah you're absolutely allowed to go to finger picking acoustic guitar and vocals like because of this wild journey that we've been on together yeah. up to this point and this is absolutely part of the story and part of you know the the um 
you know the instrumentation and production are are part of uh of spelling out the emotion yeah and also falling along with the story itself it's like this is where the person is is dead and is now being laid to what rest mm-hmm. in the ocean yeah in a very traditional way um yeah it's super well earned definitely worth the the 12 26 that it is yeah. the entire time uh, do you want to talk about O Valencia or do you want to go to the perfect crime too? Yankee Bayonet, totally fine. Totally fine little folky song. Um I with the duet, unless you want to talk about it. Do you want to talk about No, it's good. Okay. Um I uh Valencia between the but sorry, again I said I, I was gonna have trouble with track names. It's Valencia okay. and the Perfect Crime. The perfect crime. Between those two, two yeah. I'd rather just talk about the perfect crime if we okay. have to if we have to choose. <laughs> Just because I know we want to talk about a lot of the songs, right. so I'm trying to be judicious about it. O Valencia is a is a great, uh, upbeat, yeah, uh, folk rock song. Definitely uh, one of the tracks that's been stuck in my head. Yeah, it's so catchy, yeah. so 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 catchy. Um, but the fact that a uh, on its face uh, folk rock band decided to do this. Yeah, what the, I, what the actual fuck? It's it's a standout track both in terms of uh, you know being an exciting and and quality track, but it's also a standout track in that like you just nobody would have expected that, and I'm so happy that it's there. You you we use the term like out of left field a majority of the time when talking about stuff that we don't ex- this is the most like what's what's fucking left of left field <laughs> like the parking lot. Yeah, like it's just it gets so out of nowhere again. The bassist. Oh. What a fucking bassline. Yeah, top, top quality. Uh, I gotta point something out about the production on this. Did you, I don't know if you picked up, but there are two drum tracks. Yes, I think this is where the hand drums are coming in. It sounds... Or is, it's, it, it's or sa- is it double uh, full kit? Um, I don't know. Like, my ears aren't good enough to say if it's a full kit or not. Uh, but there is at the very least a second snare drum mm. and some cymbal work okay. going on that is much roomier, okay. uh, much more backed off and it wouldn't mixed surprise quieter, me if they did. Yeah. but panned all the way to the right. Mm. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it's such a interesting, like, it, you know, it's just one of those things that's very unorthodox to do. Super like slapback and tons of reverb on that little guitar lick. That's and it's so like reserved, but so ugh, it's great. Yeah, it's no, great. They, they produce the electric guitars on this album magnificently for oh, what yeah. it needs to be. Um, yeah, no, there definitely is the hand drum on this song as well. But I, I think you're right where they have a a broken down kit as mm-hmm. well, doubling it like 
And this is the song that's about the JFK assassination. I mean, I don't, I don't know what a hand sounds like on a snare drum. So, I mean, it could be that somebody's... But I was, I was hearing, like, hand drums on, like, com- congas and uh, yeah. the other fucking... Whatever that's called. I forget. Bongos? Yeah, those. Congos, bongos. Um, but, yeah, no. Like, and this is a song about, like, the people who pulled off the JFK assassination. Right. It should not be as dancey and, like, bee-cheesy as that <laughs> is. It should not be as disco, but it is, and it's great. I love it. I love it. Um, and then it goes straight from that song into When the War Came, which is, I think, the standout track on this entire album. Uh, this is the song that is about the um, siege on Leningrad, which uh-huh. is now St. Petersburg, which... Uh, historical context 900 day siege of the city uh nazi germany it stopped uh like restricted resources food all that stuff from going in there and the reason that he wrote this song is because he was reading a book about uh nikola vavilov which he references in the song Mm -hmm. who's a botanist in leningrad who refused to let any of the citizens or any of the botanists uh, cultivate and eat any of the plants that they were cultivating there and the seeds that they were cultivating there, even though the entire city was on like rations, people were dying of they were hunger. Starving, yeah. Pe- some people did resort to cannibalism, which is also referenced here. And so he was so fascinated by that idea that like someone was so dedicated to preserving the austerity of. Uh, Soviet Russia, right? Rather than actually helping the people in his city, and that's kind of where the um, whole idea of the the song comes from. And also, just like it is heavy, it is a heavy, heavy, heavy song, yeah, as well. Um, and I think they do a really good job with it as well. what feels like a velcro fuzz on it mm-hmm. uh again just like inc- slap back all the reverb just, in the yeah. world just doesn't want to be there but is still there yeah every time every time i played this song like yeah the, the production on the electric guitars on this album is just so exactly what it needs to be and that like you know i you know if it was me i probably would have ended up with a brighter tone on the guitars right but it's but that would have been wrong right like right, right. It, the the sort of warm like low mid oomph that they have darkening it just a touch than what was probably natural for that guitar yeah, yeah. it's so it it reminds me of some uh some math rock bands mm. 
whose names I can't recall yeah. right now. And also, this is like it, it's this is like getting a little medley as well. You know, like they're exploring the space of what it means to be like a, a musical ensemble as well. Um, yeah. Still within staying within the like folk Rocky, we're telling we're retelling stories through through history on right. this. Um, it definitely helps to balance out like. The I also feel like we've been talking mainly about some of the the heavier tracks uh, so far, mm-hmm. um, or at least more kind of full production, full yes. uh, full music for full instrumentation. The interesting, stuff. more interesting tracks. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's kind of like these are all the tracks that are surprising about this album and make it such an interesting album. Yeah. Um, but some of the stuff we haven't talked about is just like yeah, no, that is exactly how you would produce. Uh, a folk rock right song. there's nothing yeah. there's nothing unexpected about the stuff that we haven't talked about it's just uh and it, but it's still good yeah um anyway yeah um so moving from that to the Shankill butchers um which i love the fact that this is told like sung from the perspective of like um old wives tale or like yeah. a, 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 a oh, yeah. brother's grim yeah tale. it's it's, yeah. it's very like you kids better behave yourself or uh, the shank hill butchers are gonna come they're get gonna you. come get you yeah they used to be just like me and you they used to be sweet little boys but something went horribly askew Now killing is our only source of joy As everybody knows If you don't mind your mother's words yeah, it's just it it it's the right amount of like creepy and reserved. Yeah, it's also production wise like uh so heavily contrasted to the last song we were just talking about. It it so feels like a living room show yes. to me. Like it, fe- oh, it feels like it it's you sit you put your headphones on and you close your eyes and it feels like you are in a room where they are like in somebody's house and they are playing a show to like 25 people who are all like cramped and like squeezed into the kitchen right. and are all dead silent and they're just they're just fixated on it right um and they have some experience of producing uh, music like that um, because on their last album, before this one, uh, Picturesque, I believe is how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, Picturesque, maybe. Yeah. Um, the Mariner's Revenge Song is a nine-minute-long song there where they recorded all of the instrumentation and production of it by just having one single microphone, yeah. and the instruments would just move closer and farther back right. based off of when it was supposed to be. So they have a lot of experience of producing one mic in a room um sounds so it it makes sense that they're able to pull that through and also hurdy gurdy man hurdy fucking gurdy Um, we gotta be careful with that cup yeah (laughs) um so we're gonna skip summer song because again it's just like it's a good it's a good folk rock song yeah but there's nothing too interesting to talk about they're just more in other interesting more there Um, are other things that are more interesting like the crane wife one and two which 
I love the fact that they split up the the three parts right. of the crane wife in here. Yeah. Um, that they give you the the taste at the very beginning of like the sorrow at the very end, where it's this man realizing, oh, I fucked up, and then giving you the backstory um, much much later in the entire album. It was a helpless thing upon a red stain with an arrow in swing and a calling cry and a calling cry inside. And a calling cry and a calling cry. And the way that they play their instruments on this is also the most like traditional folky that we've talked about as well. And I yeah. love the very quick um, finger picking hammer on hammer off on the acoustic as well. Like yeah. it's, it just hits in the way that it should, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, this, this is another 12 minute long song that it, it only goes through two stories, but they build it in such a beautiful way. I think. do a really good job with um how they're going about it and then the the second bit of it is a different musical movement as well just while keeping it very traditional folky mm-hmm. um but having two different aspects of attacking it um i think throughout the, the way that they did it is just impressive man just really impressive uh i feel like we we have to at least touch on sons and daughters um mostly because i'm just fascinated what you think of this song yeah you're gonna have to you're gonna have to remind me what it is i don't have track names <laughs> When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls, aluminum will fill our mouths, the cinema. Um, it was like it's one of the more forgettable tracks for me. Oh, okay. Um, that's fair. Yeah, I can. Is there? Can we get playback on like a chorus section? Yeah, 
uh, it is fun that they uh, Josh was counting off the rounds uh, in the chorus there for me. Yeah, uh, it is fun that they did that. It, it's it's a good track. Yeah, um, it is just you know it's one of the more forgettable tracks for me. Right. Um, it's uh, it's definitely got like a very bright. Um, more kind of uh, joyful tone to it, especially compared to the rest of the album. Oh, I'm yeah. sure that it, it's the most uplifting. Yeah, song. And, it, and it certainly uh, is good to be present on a very sort of heavy feeling album, right? Um, but yeah, it's definitely not something that I would point to on this album as like, yeah, this is one of the reasons to listen to this album. This is, but it is one of yeah. the things that makes this album as amazing as it is. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I lo- like this is unabashedly like one of my favorite <laughs> songs yeah. on the album. Like it's just fun. It's just fun. I think that's why I like it so much. Um, also, the entire, like, when we arrive, we'll build our house with aluminum, we'll fill our mouths with cinnamon is, like, that's wives' tales of, like, how to uh, protect yourself from nuclear radiation. She <laughs> um, references a dirigible, which is just an airship. Right. It's like, okay, sure, throw that in there. Also, it's just fun that he says, take up your arms, sons and daughters, when we arise from the bunker. And in 2022, for the first time that they're touring since the pandemic happened, they're calling their tour the when we arise from the bunker tour. Oh, wow. That's sick. That's pretty good. That's really good. Yeah. Um, and then it just ends uh, with them repeating and just all of the instruments going, the drums going f- as off as they can on this album mm-hmm. when all the bombs fade away. Like, it's just such an uplifting, like, yeah, we went through all of this shit. We went through all of this death and heartache and whatnot. But you know what? We're going to go to a new land and we're going to build a home and things are going to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, I think it just ends in a really, really lovely way uh for the album but i get why it's a little it it is a little repetitive it's a little boring at at points you know repetitiveness i don't think is an an inherently bad thing um i you know i mean the perfect crime is one of my favorite tracks on this album and (laughs) that is very yeah no you're 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 right you're right um but yeah no i i more meant like it is repetitive in the sense that it's a two chord song and it builds but it doesn't build to the the maximum that it can until the very end and it's a five minute long song you know it's like it's like kind of that stuff where it's like not that it is repetitive but it is so simple and it's kind of long and it doesn't get overly interesting till about halfway through right so um yeah all right well uh these are what some people thought at the time uh the av club noel murray uh for the av club gave it an a and he said, uh, the songs brim with melodic ideas, but the album never overwhelms because Malloy doesn't try to pack every minute with words and hooks. The songs tend to be peppy, guitar driven and spacious as easy as cracking an egg. Very good. Very uh, good. Stefan M. Dusner uh, for Pitchfork gave it an 8.4 and said Malloy's t- uh, tale telling will always define the Decemberists, but the Crane Wife puts as much weight on the music as on the lyrics. And here the band gels into a tight, intuitive unit. The musicians give each song a particular spark and character, not just reinforcing the lyrics, but actively telling the story. Yeah. And then for The Guardian, Dorian Linsky gave it four stars and said, It is all as self consciously stagey as a Wes Anderson movie. 
too arc and florid to really engage the heart, but bold and wondrous entertainment nonetheless. Ah, fuck you, guy. <laughs> like, it's, it's a little... I mean, yeah, the Decembers are a little Wes Anderson-y, where it's like they all know it's a stage, and they all are just like... They know that they're here to, like, right. tell stories. Yeah, but, you know, part like part of telling stories is getting people to to experience uh emotions like that oh, yeah. uh, as with any art and uh i well you just flipped away from it but he, he said something to the effect of basically like uh yeah this to, doesn't to arc in florida to really engage the heart yeah i would disagree with that i think engage the heart like i in comparison to other more like i'm going to intentionally tug at your heartstrings musicality that was kind of coming around in, okay, in yeah. 2006 yeah to then have something it's similar to like a wes anderson movie where it's like it can tug at your heartstrings but like it's not because it is intentionally this like deep emotional like it gets there eventually but not that's right. not what it is on its face okay um the the only other like big legacy bit of this is this uh kind of did propel the decembers to stardom um Greg Daniels of The Office on NBC and Parks and Rec on NBC obviously loved The Decemberist because he had uh, The Decemberist show up to perform on Parks and Rec on one of the earlier seasons and did That's The Crane right. Wife for that. And then had, uh, during the final season, had the Schrute family cover Sons and Daughters. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and that uh, apparently was supposed to be the theme song for the Dwight Schrute spinoff. Oh, there was gonna. Okay, yeah. Oh, my! <laughs> it did not happen. Thank goodness. That yeah. would have been a mistake. It it would have, and they didn't do it. Um, and it was also ranked as NPR listeners' number one album of two thousand and six. All right, all right. But you know what? It doesn't matter what NPR listeners in two thousand and six thought because they didn't give it a score. Right. They just said number one. What the fuck does that even mean? What does that Jared, even mean? Uh, if number one on what list? Yeah, not our one, list. Not, not on the only list that matters. Not on the list. The only list that's rated in it out of 21. Give me a number out of 21 for this album. Isn't it out of 22? Oh, no, you're right. It is out of 22. Or is give, it out of 20? No, it's out of 22. <laughs> give, me, give me a number out of 22 on how good this album is. Fuck. Uh... Man, our scoring system is so fucked. I love uh, it. Uh, yeah, I love it too. I like. I kind of want to give it a perfect score. Shit. Um. I'm not sure what's stopping me. Is it the fact that it's the Decemberists and you had never listened to them before this album, so you're like, surely I'm just over overreacting to how good this is, right? I. <sighs> I don't know. I I can't really think of anything that I would change about this album. Like, yeah, I'm fuck it. I'm gonna give it a twenty two out of twenty two. Damn. Okay. Um, I was coming in here being like, you know what? I think uh, Yankee Bayonet and Summer Song are just a little too similar and a little too <laughs> meh. So I'm gonna give it like a twenty one out of twenty two to be generous to it. But like I'm willing to go with you on this ride of giving it a perfect I, score. I I could go with a twenty one out of twenty two. I think that's I, I think that's very respectable. That is very respectable. So basically what we're saying is do we think it's better or worse than Eons by Mimicking Birds? I don't think that's a fucking question. Josh, if you ever accuse any <laughs> album of being better than Eons by Mimicking Birds, I will personally end you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> counterpoint. 
thinks this album's better than Neon's by Mimikyu. Oh my <laughs> god! I think, I think, I think Mimicking Birds is a fantastic exploration of emotion, lyricism, musicality. It Josh, is I would like a- to remind you that that album made you cry. Oh, fucking hell, you're right. Shit. All right, 21 out of 22. <laughs> it is the second best album of all time. <laughs> God damn you and my emotions. You got me. So it's between Eons and... Uh, pieces of a man. Pieces of a man. My girl's got hair in it. I think this is. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm good with that. God, we're such we're such simps for the Pacific Northwest sound. <laughs> God fucking damn it. I don't mind it. I don't mind it one bit. All right, so let me give you the rundown of the top five and the bottom five of the list. Please and do. And listeners, you can uh, check out the entire list by following the link in the description of the podcast you are listening to. It links right to it so you can see all 22 albums we've ever talked about. So, best album of all time, Jared. Uh, That would be Eons by Mimicking Birds. That is Eons by Mimicking Birds, the best album of all time. Uh, Right below that is The Crane Wife by The Decemberists, a worthy number two. Right below that, Pieces of a Man by Gil Scott Heron. Under that, number four is Let It Die by Feist. And right up under there, Mass Seduction by St. Vincent. And I think that makes this our highest scoring, This is the, our, our highest placing album pair yeah. of any episode. Yes, it, it since the first like two episodes, yeah, but that doesn't really count because we went from having none to having four in the first two episodes. Yes, right. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, this is definitely the, the, two, the two most quality albums we have talked about at the same time which is certainly a it's nice impressive. change of pace from last episode you must listen you can't have the highs without having the lows speaking of the lows let's get down to uh our least good our less less than less than perfect uh really unfortunate that we had to talk about albums um so currently the fifth worst album of all time is a big mess by danny elfman it's not gonna stay there well, would you like to know what the fourth worst album of all time is? Oh, uh, what's the fourth worst album? Josh? It is Ten by Pearl Jam. Right below that, as the third worst album of all time, it is Dennis Was a Bird by Tom Rosenthal. Underneath that, it's a uh, Wasteland Baby by Hoysier, second worst album of all time. But Jared, what's the worst album of all time? Well, you know you can't have one without the other. Josh, changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes by none other than uh, James Buffet. Yes, James Buffet. Uh, you can't have one without the other. <laughs> uh, so that's where the list currently stands. Uh, so we are gonna. T- Roll some dice, and we're going to pick some new albums for yeah. us to... Uh, <laughs> I always do this. I'm like, oh, no, I didn't prepare. And then it's just right on my desk. What do we got? We got a seven. <laughs> you got be, you got to be fucking kidding me, Josh. All right, so next week, because you rolled a seven, we are doing The Rise and Fall of Zicky Stardust and The Spiders from Mars by David Bowie. Someday I'm going to roll a different number. Please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh. So I'm going to go, and that is an eight, which means we are doing Jamie by Brittany Howard. Oh, excellent. Very excited for that. I'm excited, too. Very excited for that. Jared, this was a very successful episode. What Music can be good. Truly. 
I think we forgot. I think we forgot that music can be good. Have to be reminded. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you all uh, for joining us uh, on this lovely adventure. I appreciate all of you. Uh, as always, you know, check out the links down in the podcast description uh, to find some pretty cool stuff that we do. Uh, I've been Josh and uh, Jared. What do we say to the lovely people every single time we log off? Go to pee before you go to bed so you don't have to wake up in the middle of the night. thing so like for my job i use canva a lot for it Mm -hmm. and the one i think about canva is they have all of those aspect ratios pre-put into their templates Uh, so all you have to do is type in like instagram post and it pops up with the like 1920 by 1080 or whatever right so that's like super helpful the other fucking thing is that instagram has so many variations for posting video now yeah because it's basically a tiktok version and then a story version and then uh regular and a regular story and a regular uh post real. version yeah and, and, then, the and then there's real yeah, and it's, yeah. Like, uh, it's a lot that's why people, people's entire jobs are to edit just stuff to and do put, stuff yeah. yeah just to do stuff like that uh yeah it drives me fucking bonkers and i hate it and i, I hate the world yeah that's fair <laughs> uh as the, as uh letter kenny told us I, I hate my parents i hate the world and i hate myself you know right I, the three creeds to live by. I posted, uh, I got a trick that I had been wanting to do for a long time, and I finally landed it for the first time today. Um, and I brought my camera. Yeah. And posted it, or recorded it, and then I posted it today. And the thing is, so, not like I care about engagement on my personal page. Right. But, like, people are more likely to see your content if it is posted in a vertical orientation because it literally spends more time on their screen when they're scrolling. Right. Uh, Which is bullshit. Which is bullshit, and I hate it. Uh, But also... Yeah, and so, like, I brought my camera and I I did it in 9x16 instead of 16x9. Yeah. And I went to go post it, and I, you know, I edited it, I color corrected it. I'm like, yeah, this looks good. All right, whatever. Go to post it, and uh, the um, app that I used on my computer, because now you can post to Instagram from a PC, as we already talked about. As we know, um, it automatically, like, you know, you can select different aspect ratios, but yeah. it automatically does 16 by nine, yeah, as de- as the default. And so, literally, I like the preview of the video that I got was a sixteen by nine crop out of the center of my vertical video, That's... and I was like, "This looks better. This looks better." I hate vertical video. It's so bad. Like there is so like this is a thing. Like when it comes to composition. Uh, like in cinema, you have to choose the right aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a two by one aspect ratio might look wide and super cinematic, but like if you're filming a half shot of two people talking and one of them is like half the height of the other person, it's just going to look fucking awkward. Right. You know? And like you, you have to choose the right aspect ratio for what you're shooting. And that's the whole thing. And like 
when it comes to composition that really matters there's yeah. a huge difference between shooting vertically and shooting horizontally and the majority of action that happens like you know in video uh-huh is not something you want to film like it's not a vertical action that's how happening. often are things moving up and down almost never like, almost ever and if they are moving up and down it's because they moved up and down after horizontal action right itself um yeah well it's the same thing like just like choosing to, to take a still photo you know vertically or or horizontally it's like you're actively choosing to include and not include other things yeah it's about what information you want yeah. present in the image and like yeah i did, i and shot then, it vertically <laughs> and i was like skateboarding's not meant to be shot for it like it's just wrong right. it's just wrong it doesn't then, look good and then on top of that to just like have an ai like program tell you no it looks better this way it's like no you don't fucking know <laughs> well it's not like it, it you know it was just like it's a a pull-up list of what aspect right. ratio you're trying to post yeah. as and just the first selection is 16 by 9 it's um, just it's just so silly yeah it's so silly and what's even sillier is in like 20 years from now, like vertical video will probably be the norm for like, I mean, it is the, like, I mean, not like, I will say that I'm surprised that there hasn't been a, like a feature film shot entirely in, uh, in like a nine by 16 aspect ratio. Right. Like I'm surprised that hasn't already been done. Um, just we be, can't be far off right and like yeah i don't know you know i have to i ha, i run five instagram accounts right and so like you're I can, <laughs> at least like you just hate yourself yeah because i hate myself yeah um and like you know these are things that i have to think about constantly and it's like yeah when i can get away with sh with posting vertical video i have to but like it's so it's so rarely the right decision in the compositional yeah. uh step um, and it's so frustrating that that's sort of the mold that it's being forced into now. Yeah. Uh, well, especially because yeah. I, I, I mean, it might change because art always changes and whatnot, but it might be the case in like 30 years from now, people will actually know how to compose things in more, a more vertical focused way, or they'll have a better understanding of it. Yeah. I and mean, so therefore like the, the, there is an optimistic part of yeah. me that's like, yeah, uh, you know, there is there's there's unexplored territory in this yeah. and it's kind of like this exciting thing that now there is a legitimate way like you can post vertical video on YouTube. I did that, you know, I did that with right. uh, a Show Tigers music video um because I knew that the majority of people who were going to watch that video were going to watch it like this. <laughs> right. And <laughs> I was like yeah, I mean cool. yeah, and like that's the thing that's and part of that was uh I knew that ahead of time that I'm doing a lyric video. I'm going to do it vertically because because of this and I'm going to plan what I'm going to put in the image on a vertical ahead scale ahead of time yeah. because I know that I'm going to shoot like that. But that was a very specific situation and the thing is the majority of content that you would want to the the majority of stuff that you would want to shoot video of is not stuff that you want to shoot vertically. No, it's not, yeah. And until I guess until the world exists in a more vertical sense, which it never will, most likely, you know, it's not, it's not like the earth is a, suddenly going to become more vertical. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, uh, you know, our eyes are situated next to each other and not on top of each other. Listen, if we, get, we perceive the world in a horizontal manner, if in like 2000 years from now, if, if 
whatever humanoids are do have the more like halibut like vertical eye bit you know what you know what sure okay maybe gen z wins that one people spend so much time looking at their phones that their eyes just migrate oh my god